the University of California Riverside presents Blue, Gold, and Black, the podcast that's dedicated to amplifying Black voices at UCR. I'm Dominique Bill from UCR's Community Engagement and Outreach Unit. In each episode, we'll be talking to UCR students, campus leaders, and community partners to explore the intersection of being Black and being a Highlander at UCR. And I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? I want to give a huge shout out to Toy, who is the assistant director of the LGBT Resource Center. The LGBT Resource Center sponsored today's episode. So make sure you guys check them out, show them some love, and let's get to our guest. Welcome, everybody, to the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast, where we are amplifying black voices at UCR. I am your host, Dominique Bill. Today, we have a super special guest. Gabriel Maldonado is a former UCR student graduated from UCR, and he's been doing some really, really amazing things ever since he's graduated. So we're going to talk to him today, get a little bit about his background, his story, um, his experience at UCR, and what he's been doing since graduation. Gabriel, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good, Dominic. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Thank you. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So, Gabriel, if you could, please give us a little bit of your background history, kind of um, how you grew up, where you grew up. And also, if you can highlight um, what it was for you growing up and identifying with your black experience. Right. How did you kind of come into that identity? Um, What were some of the pivotal moments throughout your upbringing that kind of reinforced your black identity? Um, And let's start there and let's have a great conversation. Yeah. Wow. Um, Well, firstly, thank you so much for allowing me to be in the space. And I'm really excited to just, you know, share a little bit about what my experience has been. And hopefully that can inspire and, you know, give a little bit of guidance to uh, the next generation of UCR students and alum. Um, Yes, sir. So I am the founder and CEO of True Evolution. We are a community-based nonprofit organization. We're a community health center. We're an LGBT-focused organization. And we are an infectious disease organization focusing largely on HIV and STDs um, in Riverside and San Bernardino County. And, you know, it's really interesting to think that today I work, you know, at this intersection of health equity and racial justice. And I've always believed that, you know, in order to kind of get the whispers of where you may be going or what your purpose is in life or what your calling is, you know, you can look at your past. And there's so much evidence in your history and in your adolescence and your culture and your identity and your upbringing that really informs you of like who it is that you can become and what it is that you can do in the world. And, you know, I know for me that uh, even though Riverside and San Bernardino is where I pledge allegiance, Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in Compton. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles County. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a time that was very interesting, particularly for race relations and very, really challenging place for someone who comes from the biracial experience. You know, I am black and African-American from my mother and I am uh, Latino, Mexican-American on my father's side. Mm. And, and that's really important because the time that I grew up, um, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a, a, a very changing demographic in the South Los Angeles area where neighborhoods that have historically been black and African-American all of a sudden had this new influx of Latinos and Mexican-Americans and um, uh, people from El Salvador and people from Guatemala and, um, you know, folks from different parts of Latin America. And this kind of mixing 
within our neighborhoods created a lot of tension in which, you know, being biracial wasn't just, uh, you know, a manifestation of your identity, but mm-hmm. it really could be um, the difference in survival. Wow. You know, because for, you know, young boys and young girls, young people growing up in, in places like Compton and like Watts, you know, mm. your tribe is what results in your ability to succeed and be safe and be protected. Mm. And and so, you know, it was very challenging for me to kind of understand my, my own identity. Um, mm. My mom is black. And for anyone who has a black mother, you know that you know, having a black mother makes you 100% black most often because the, 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 the culture and, you know, the foods that are cooked and, you know, the nuances and the, yeah. the way they discipline is very yeah. unique uh, to right. a black experience. And so, you know, that has always been something that I've carried within my heart. And I think as I've, I've grown and as I've gotten closer to my father over the years and mm-hmm. um, gotten closer to the Latino experience, I really feel as though that the Afro-Latino identity is something that I hold really quite dear. And that shows mm. clearly in my organization's work today um, mm. because we are about, we're about 40% in our client census of African-Americans and we're about okay. 60% in our client census on Latinos. And I think right. the, the Latinx community and the black community are people that we center in our work, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and, you know, I grew up in poverty and right. I specifically watched how the industrialization of urban communities, specifically in Compton, be overtaken by refineries and chemical factories and distribution warehouses and logistics companies. And, you know, I really watched how, you know, poor communities of color um, in urban environments were being taken advantage of. And, you know, today um, that has really inspired and informed my passion and commitment to public health and and my, my focus on health disparities. You know, I think that, um, you know, being a gay man mm. has certainly been um, a very challenging, traumatic, blessing, mm. powerful experience. And, you know, the time that I was in high school was n- not very forgiving on mm. LGBTQ youth. And,. I think it was those feelings of being, um, you know, marginalized and bullied and not understanding my own self. I think that is really what kind of centers and anchors the work that I do today to center around the human dignity of LGBTQ people. So um, that's just a little bit about where I'm from and kind of how that informs Mm. a bit of the work that I do today. Yeah. um, And, you know, I know in our in an earlier conversation, we had uh, you had a little bit of something to say about the term intersections and intersectionality and stuff. Um, and you, I, I thought it was really interesting the way you phrased it. And I, I'd like for you to talk on that because when we talk about identities, right? You're you're Black African American. You're Mexican American. Uh, you are a gay man, and so obviously, all of these things culminate into one human experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it can be a little bit difficult um, navigating and finding the language to fully express that or articulate that, especially when it's mixed with um, maybe traumatic experiences or a lack of support for who you are, or who you are becoming. Can you kind of share your thoughts on that with the audience? Because I thought that was really fascinating the way you put it. Yeah. Well, you know, 
growing up, there were very, very few representations and mm-hmm. there were very few examples, mm. you know, of what it meant to be a gay man in my time, period, mm. in general. Right. Um, there were very jaded, stereotyped, and um, incomplete explanations mm. and articulations of what it meant to be a black man. Mm. And, and so when I came to UCR and when I went to college, it was really one of the first times that I was equipped with language and vocabulary right. to articulate who I am. And so, right. you know, I remember when I was in undergrad, that was when the term intersectionality really started to become a very, you know, widely used phrase or colloquial to describe yeah. these kinds of layers and these, um, you know, uh, kind of juxtaposing or adjacent cultural experiences with the right, person's identity right. or lived experience. And when I got into doing activism, mm-hmm. there is nothing more sobering in working with the least among us to realize mm. that the college experience was indeed a great privilege. Mm. And that everyday community and people that don't come from the ivory towers or were not equipped with some kind of academic, you know, intellectual way of articulating themselves still operate on a combination of, you know, a very simplistic understanding of themselves, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also recognizing that there does not need to be these kinds of well-articulated and well-defined distinctions in how my identity shows up. So, you know, for instance... Um, I am a black man and, um, I am also a gay man, but I also am a Christian and I Mm. am a believer in the Judeo-Christian, uh, framework and vocabulary of spirituality. I am a spiritual person, um, but I have found that Christianity and specific, um, passages and specific stories in the Bible is what Mm -hmm. allowed me to find my liberation and freedom. And that isn't the case with everyone. And I think that is one of those examples where um, if I were to look at my identities as differing identities somehow intersecting, then I'm going to run into a whole series of disagreements between what does it mean to be a liberated gay man Versus what does it mean to be a person of, of, of spiritual practice, someone to specifically come from the Christian experience and the Christian vocabulary. And I think for me, it, it, it got too um, jarring for me to look at my identities in differing lanes and then try and mm. figure out how they all intersect. And rather, I simply show up into the space in the full layers of complication that I may come and And sometimes the way I may, may communicate myself may represent m- one culture or one way of thinking more than the other. Sure. You know, I, I, I may not always come with the most, you know, anarchist, liberation, tear the system <laughs> down type framework. And that doesn't make right. me any more, any less black, any sure. less brown, any less radical, any less woke. It just mm-hmm. means that I come from a very layered set of experiences and wisdoms mm-hmm. and understandings and practices and how they all come together um, is messy yeah. and it's not always balanced and it's not always mm-hmm. an even 50, 50 percent percentage. It just depends yeah. on you know, what is happening in my environment and, and what yes. kind of power in that moment I'm being called to summon. And I pull and I draw from religion to identity to race Mm. to culture to 
everything to be able to kind of make decisions and, and move myself forward in life. Um, and so I really just encourage us to not only be empowered by the more mm. sophisticated language that we may have in our identity, but at some point in the course of your identity's experience to be able right. to liberate yourself from all vocabulary. And that mm. you don't have to confine yourself by any form of words. And you may not even have the ability to express who it is you are, or what it is you're feeling. And that's okay. That's okay, too. Um, and, and, yeah, and so I always encourage that um, as people are trying to figure out who it is they are in the world. Welcome back. We had a small little edit. Um, welcome back to the Blue, Golden Black podcast. We got everything sorted out. Gabriel's still with us. He's still here. We just wrapped up a little bit talking about how um, identities clash when you come from various backgrounds or different orientations or genders. Um, and pretty much I think what Gabriel was trying to get at was just saying that at some point in time, you're going to have to be okay or find the space to be okay with all of your identities coming together and in certain situations one identity might come out more than the other but you are a culmination of all of these things they don't have to be segmented and compartmentalized in order to fully understand you are having a human experience and this is just how it's expressed um, and we don't always need to have sophisticated language and vocabulary to um state that we are who we are. Um, and I think that can resonate with a lot of our students. I, in particular, I grew up mixed as well. I had a black father and a white mother. Um, and so that was a, and for me, it was nothing I ever really thought about too in depth. Maybe once I started getting a little bit older, um, but my, my father, uh, we grew up very black. <laughs> he was, 100% adamant that it doesn't matter what type of hair, curly hair you got. If you're light skin, you're black, you're going to work twice as hard. Um, and that's how the world is going to see you. And so a lot of those type of um, black euphemisms and, and expressions were instilled in me at a very young age. And so that's always something I, um, I clung to. And as ironic as it is, I never really felt like um, it clashed per se, with my whiteness so much. Um, and so I, I would also say I'm very fortunate in that because I know other people can have very much more difficult experiences kind of navigating that way through um, their identity. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And so what I want to do now is I kind of want to ask you, so d is college something you knew you always wanted to do? Was college always instilled in you? Like you're going to go to college, you're going to get them grades, you're going to get a good job, or how did you kind of find your way into higher education? God, no. Um, <laughs> that, that's one of those moments, right, where I knew God was real. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, you know, I had the um, challenging but very blessed experience um, to really not have any of the traditional um, kind of character traits as an adolescent that lets you know that you're valuable. Mm. You know, I did not do well in school. You wow. know, um, the, how mm. I grew up and the environment that I grew up in and kind of the conditions and environmental home that I was raised in. Um, mm. It really just wasn't conducive for robust learning or right. healthy learning or, um, and so I didn't do well in school and okay. um, I, I, I was going to get held back for like failing math, like almost three years in a row from like wow. seventh grade, eighth grade and ninth grade. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, did not have, you know, any kind of notable uh, athletic talents, mm-hmm. you know, not very creative, couldn't draw a straight line with a ruler <laughs> if I tried. Um, right, right. You know, there were just so many things around me that typically are given as opportunities to young people to let them know that they have purpose, they have direction, they have a calling, Mm. you're good at this, do this, focus on Mm. this, put your energy into this. And often, particularly for um, young people of color and young people who grow up in, you know, um, you know, certain low-income communities and disadvantaged mm-hmm. communities typically it is things like your athletic ability or you could become that bill and melinda gates millennium scholarship winner mm-hmm. or you know you were considered the best and the brightest in your class and i didn't have any of those things mm-hmm. and um i really was told that i was supposed to just go to the military you know wow. and that's that's kind of what i was told to do by a lot of people wow you know and i think leadership and the kind of leadership opportunities that I got towards the latter part of my high school career, mm-hmm. it sort of opened up this whole other world to me mm. of, of things that you could do. And, um, you know, and I found my salvation was my work ethic. Because mm. even though I wasn't the fastest, even when I, though I was certainly not the smartest, I wasn't nearly the most creative, um, I would work the hardest. And I mm-hmm. was the first one to get up. And I would be the last one to go to bed. And it, it has been my work ethic that has allowed me the opportunity to, to go to a four-year university. And, and unfortunately, because of the, you know, just the, the unfortunate state of our education system in the United States, mm-hmm. now you need a whole lot more than work ethic to mm. get through um, any kind of a college experience. And you could have all the hardest work ethic in the world, and there are still so many significant financial and political and geographic reasons why Mm -hmm. people do not are not able to achieve higher education Mm. you know and so for me it really was god that just gave me that window and and i i actually got into uc santa barbara as well and most of my peers that got into ucs were either Mm -hmm. going to ucla or uc santa barbara and so I thought I was going to go to UC Santa Barbara because that's where I knew everyone from my high school was going right. that did get into a UC, that didn't go to UCLA. Right. And something in my instinct, and I remember when I went out there, my family is from Riverside, and I was like, I don't want to go out there because my family's out there. Yeah. And, um, and I think I'm so grateful that I did. You know, I'm so grateful that I did. And UCR yeah. was the blessing that I didn't know was, was, was in route, certainly not when I was trying to prepare for college. Right. And so... You know, one of the major themes that I've been noticing in the interviews that I've been doing, um, you know, with the black community here on campus is everybody so far has talked about this aspect of men- mentorship, right? And just having one or maybe those two key people at that key time in their life that mm-hmm. took what could have been a train wreck into, you know, a, a, a luxury train line, right? And it was just that pivotal moment that allowed them to kind of really alter their mind, I guess, in a way to say like, yo, this, this, the pursuit of this higher education can really allow me to change my circumstances, right? We talk about things like upward and social mobility, right? Um, And how higher education can play a part in that. So um, 
were there moments before you got to UCR that you could identify a person or a group of people who like really kind of just grabbed you, picked you up, and then set you on the right track? Um, was there anyone that kind of yes. pr- provided that mentorship to you? You know, um, um, yes, <laughs> and and I'll just and I'll just say generally that my entire career mm. and and everything that I have achieved yeah. in this brief time is all based on, based on relationships, every wow. bit of it. I owe everything that I have to mm. mentors and peers and supporters and advisors who have shaped everything that I am. Mm. And I feel like that's also what makes me indestructible mm. um, because I am not just built on myself and I'm not just built on what I achieved but I am built on all of the many mentors and advisors and right. peers who poured into me. And I think that's one of the things that, that college and UCR particularly equipped me with mm. was a network and a series of relationships that mm-hmm. have lasted throughout the years. I would say that, you know, before UCR, right. um, the now Los Angeles city councilman, Joe Buscaino, Prior to him becoming a city council member, he was a cop with the Los Angeles Police Department. Okay. And he worked in coordination with a high school-based program called um, the, uh, the Police Academy, which was throughout multiple different districts throughout LAUSD, Los Angeles Unified School District. And I was a part mm. of that program. And okay. through that, I met Joe. And Joe has known me since I was 13 years old, and I knew him you know, before he gave anyone's speech in any kind of suit, he was <laughs> right. a cop that we all knew as Joe. Um, right. And when I say that that was probably Joe and um, Sergeant Plows and Commander McNamara, if I remember really? all of them correctly. Okay. Yeah. And um, they were funny enough when I think about the state of the police system and the criminal justice system and all mm-hmm. the work that I stand for. Right. I owe so much of the seeds for who I am mm. today to those officers in the Los Angeles Police Department. And wow. I would be doing an injustice to my sense of justice by right. not calling the names of those who poured into me. Yeah. And so I think that there are still opportunities and hope for us to be able to identify the threads within the system yeah. that can be used to empower black, brown, poor communities. And Mm. I think we need to go about remedying and replicating and enhancing and changing these systems that can give more young people like myself an opportunity. Absolutely. Um, And I think it's critical. And we're going to transition then into um, that the part of mentorship where you're in a position of leadership now and now you're able to reach behind you and pull the next generation up. But before that, let's let's talk about for prospective students. What was your UCR experience like? Um, it's a big college campus. It's part of the UC system. It's an institution, right? And it has a bunch of positives and negatives. But what was it about UCR that kind of then shifted your trajectory even more to your postgraduate career that you're in? How was your UCR experience? Well, I, I do want to say that I, I graduated in 2011 and mm. I, my class, I, I was the class of 2011, but I was, uh, I came into UCR in 2007 and gotcha. I will just tell you, UCR was a very different place than what it is today. You know, mm. in many ways, UCR has just become such a magical 
place of respect and status. And I always say that every year I see that UCR is making my degree more valuable. So I'm so <laughs> grateful to all of the faculty and the administrators Man. at UCR because I remember when I graduated in 2011, the amount of respect that that degree carries today from that institution has certainly elevated as Elevate. the university has grown and in position and stature and expanding to the School of Medicine and yeah. you know, all the many things that are coming out of the university. Yeah. So I want to say that there are many amazing things that have happened. Sure. However, I will say that when I went to UCR, mm-hmm. you know, it was a village. Mm. It was a village. It wasn't too big. Right. It was it was it was a good size. Campus culture was strong. Yeah. Unity was strong. The um, I'm not in, in the Greek life, but I was a, a, an admiring observer of the right. Greek culture. And <laughs> sure. Greek culture on UCR's campus, particularly for the black community, was just so robust. The Divine mm. Nine had events every week. Almost all the Divine Nine had a chapter that right. was fully active and functional on campus. And, right. you know, you just saw a whole lot of innovation that came out and the kinds of relationships that we created inside of our classrooms. I mean, mm. you could, I, I walked away with some of my best friends I right. met in my lectures. I mean, my best friends today that are still like my ride to dies day. today. Yeah. yeah, I met in a lecture in one of the large lecture halls of like 200. Mm. I don't know if people do that today. Like, mm. I don't know if that happens in the level of common occurrence that it did then. Right. Right. You know, and, and, and that kind of collegiality and camaraderie yeah. that you felt on the campus. Right. Um, we had our issues. Um, I will say, though, to answer your question directly, mm-hmm. my campus experience was very much a bubble from the things that were happening in my personal life. And my okay. personal life, it, it, was, it was the, the mm. most traumatic um, set of experiences mm. from about 20 to 25 that that will will that have they were the catalyst gotcha. the absolute catalyst for my life today gotcha. and i think if that hadn't been juxtaposed against the camaraderie the solidarity mm. the relationships um the people and the real inspiration that i got particularly i i, I found my passion for political science and government um, and and political philosophy. I found that at UCR and I didn't have that before. You know, Mm. I I didn't have that before. I I grew into my passion for the world and culture um, through my experiences at UCR. And I think that's what allowed me to get through what I was going through Mm. in my personal life was that kind of pouring into the soul that my college experience gave me. No, that's that's really dope. And, you know, um, I, I think back to to my undergrad experience and um, and I always tell students that I kick myself in the butt for it. But I, I wasn't um, I wasn't immersed into my college experience. I wasn't living on campus. I always had at least two jobs. I had a kid my second semester of my junior year. Um, and so I was very jaded, I was very jaded towards my undergrad experience because how you said, you know, your UCR experience was vibrant. It was, it was challenging. It was camaraderie and it was juxtaposed with your personal life. My personal life completely bled over into my undergrad experience yeah. and yeah. it really jaded me. And I was very frustrated because I wasn't doing well in school and it, took me till my third time on academic probation to realize like, oh, it's my personal life that's, you know, making my college experience so tough. And I, 
you know, when I got to UCR, at least professionally, um, last year, I was instantly blown away with Costo Hall, right, um, mm-hmm. where all of the gender and ethnic resource centers are. And I was just like, I've never seen this before. I didn't even know this type of stuff existed beyond, like, a school having a black student union, right? Like, right. we actually have an African student program. So we actually have yeah. an LGBTQ resource center, women's center, or Middle Eastern yeah. center. Like, yeah. I just thought that was so dope. And, you know, I, I try to tell students now, like, even with the challenges that UCR has, like, you can build and find community. Um, you can get involved in such a way and advocate for yourself in such a way that, you know, you're constantly trying to push the university to be better. And I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people on campus, especially within um, the black community that are really focused on making the, you know, future generations of scholars coming in, making sure that they know that they can feel um, supported and be safe. And so, um, obviously, you own your own business, uh, True Evolution. Is that something that you got started while at UCR, or did that come more so after the fact, or did UCR kind of plant the seeds of what you're doing today? Well, you know, my vision for having an organization that would focus on social justice mm-hmm. came about a year before I even started at UCR. It came the summer prior to my high school graduation. Mm. And as I said, my latter half of my high school career, I I immersed myself in leadership and community Mm. work. Um, I've been a community organizer since I was Mm -hmm. about 16 years old. And Mm -hmm. I think it was this, you know, this idea of that I can make a difference and that there are other misfits and there are other people who are the least Mm. among us who need a voice and who need someone to speak on their behalf and someone Mm. who can speak with them. You know, and speak for yourself, being a part of the community. Um, And so when I came to UCR, I think UCR, because it is an institution and Mm -hmm. there is formal rigor and there's formality and there's academia. And I think Mm. that taste of, for the first time, being able to dive in critically into subjects of my choosing Mm-hmm. And I could really examine areas and issue focuses that were my passion. Mm-hmm. It really unlocked for me this whole other universe of being able to take my my passion and my previous work in community mm-hmm. and to actualize it into something formal that can drive and have power and garner and solicit resources and, mm-hmm. you know, have political power. And I think... I um, my one of my first courses at UCR in my freshman year was uh, comparative politics, and mm-hmm. it specifically looked at um, the comparison between communism in China and communism uh, in the USSR, and mm-hmm. um, and and one of the things that that really became apparent to me in just trying to understand how ideas and philosophy and belief systems and how do they materialize themselves in a way that they can actually have an impact in changing the country around you. Mm. And that was being able to collect and maneuver power. Mm. You know, and it's one of those words that is often feared by a lot of people, particularly in the very radical spaces, is this notion of power is Mm. something that belongs to the system and it belongs to the white man, it belongs to the oppressive systems or the white supremacist patriarchal capitalist system as, you know, Audre Lorde puts it or um, Bell Hooks puts it. And, you Mm. know, I think that um, when we can really capture power and we can Mm -hmm. really figure out how do we mobilize power through the democracy 
um, through institutions. Um, mm. I think then we can, you know, do something to change the world around us. And, mm. you know, really being a, a political science undergraduate at UCR really helped me to expand my idea of political mm. power, of yeah. economic power, of social mm. power. And I think True Evolution, that has been one of the guiding approaches that we've done to our work is by building relationships within the system, but also mm -hmm. within community, hopefully we can create a bridge between the people and resources. And that really is something that we live by. Yeah, no, um, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, I also want to um, ask because obviously we have the fabulous Miss Toy, the assistant director of the LGBTQ Resource Center. Please make sure you shout out Toy. She's what who she's the main person who helped facilitate this interview today with uh, Mr. Maldonado. Can you kind of just talk to us about that experience? Um, what was your experience like being a, a, a black man on UCR's campus, but also a gay man in um, utilizing the LGBTQ Resource Center um, in working with Toy? And how did that kind of empower you throughout your journey at UCR as well? Well, I think there's there's there are some similarities between some of the experiences that you you said you shared that you had at, at UCR and mine. I think. For the early part of my experience at UCR, I was working two jobs mm -hmm. and I was taking 18 units. Mm. So if I wasn't in a classroom, I was work. at work <laughs> or I was asleep. Right. And I did not utilize or dive into any of the resources at the LGBT Resource Center yeah. for at least the first two, even three years. It wow. really wasn't into the end of my third year, fourth year. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I regret it. You know, yes. I really regret that a lot. And, and, mm. and it's because the, the challenges that I was going through um, in my personal life that I had mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, was really around my, my sexuality and, and, and developing it. You know, I mm -hmm. didn't know I didn't know what my sexuality really meant. Mm. I didn't know how I was supposed to manifest it mm -hmm. at the time. It was the Proposition 8 campaign, which passed mm. yeah. in the state of California. So there were so many, again, power. There were yes. so many political representations that told me that my sexuality was not welcomed in this society. Wow. There were so many things, you know, and yeah. especially because when I came to UCR, um, there was a protest in favor of Proposition 8 right there on the corner of Martin Luther King, of all places, <laughs> MLK and Canyon Crest, right, right there at that corner, right across from where the parking lot is. And mm. there were all these signs that people held up that said, God hates faggots. Mm. And I think that it was in those early days that I really could have, I should have stepped into the UCR LGBT Resource Center. Right. And I think I could have found uh, a people and a group and a camaraderie um, with, with queer folks that would have helped me maneuver through my identity in a much more healthy way. And sure. I, I was involved in a very, uh, my first relationship was extremely abusive and mm. very violent and um, like very violent. Mm. And um, I actually still have the restraining order and my doctor's papers in wow. my safe right here um, wow. to keep as a reminder of, of, um, of the very abusive experience that I yeah. had when I first came into the LGBT wow. community. So I do regret, you know, not being a part of it. What did happen though, mm. is that in my last year, um, Toy arranged for me to go and participate in, I don't think it exists anymore, is the Western Regional Conference, which okay. was all, a collective of all the UCs that came together, specifically around um, various culture and social issues. And attending the Western Regional Conference was the first time that I ever got to be around a, a cohort of queer people. 
and wow. really dive in and, 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 and hear other people's stories and really kind of absorb with what other people will go through and, you know, and find some kind of simpatico with other people. Mm. And it was so liberating and it, it was so empowering. Mm. And Toy Thibodeau um, has, was one of the original board members of okay. True Evolution. Um, nice. Toy has been a major advisor and supporter to the organization over many years. And mm-hmm. almost 50% of my staff are UCR graduates who were referrals from the LGBT Resource Center. And so I, ever since I saw the magic and the power of the cultural and gender and ethnic programming offices that are on UCR's campus, yeah. um, all of those programming offices have always held a very strong place in my heart. And yeah. I've always considered to be very strong partners of True Evolution. Um, and, you know, so I think they're, they, they, are, they can be amazing resources for those in need. And we, I can't stress this enough, students, that should be one of your first stops when you get to campus. Obviously, we're in the COVID, um, but they have websites, and they're still operating. They're still servicing um, students in the various communities of students that exist on UCR. And if you don't take nothing else away from this interview, from my story, from Gabriel's story, understand that these resources exist to help you. And there's people in these resources that can help you get to where you want to go. And as you mentioned earlier when we were talking about mentorship, who you know is so valuable, who you know is so important and can actually help set you on that trajectory. So make sure that you're utilizing these resources. So we're coming up on the end of our interview. There's one more thing I would just like you to touch on before I ask you our last question. Um, and then that's, that's the work that you were able to do in the Obama administration. Um, Toy put me on, told me that you, you was working with the president and you had very instrumental um, roles in leadership positions. So kind of share with our audience what that experience was like and what you were able to accomplish and what you were proud of from working in that institution. Yeah. Well, in 2015, um, I had been invited um, to become a member of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS. Um, And it is an appointment made by the Secretary of Health. And I was first appointed under Secretary Bruwell, Sylvia Bruwell, um, and in the Obama administration. And that is something that I will carry with me for the rest of my life to be able to say that in some small way, I helped to move forward the agenda of you know, one of the first, uh, the first, uh, hopefully mm. not the last, but uh, the first black president in the history of the United States. And that's an honor. Yes, um, I will say that there is something magical that happened. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first day of the council meeting. Um, it's a group of 25 people. I was 20, one of 25. Mm-hmm. And we sat in a half circle. like a square half square and uh, everyone went around the room and introduced themselves and these were the executive provosts from harvard and Mm. the deans of mit and the head of the gw school of this and the deputy director of the center for disease control so shock collars pretty much right i mean the people who are the people Right in not only infectious diseases, not only in public health, but in yeah. in public policy, in Anything, policy, yeah. shock collars, mm-hmm. and I'm just a, a little black queer boy from from <laughs> UCR, right? And I remember hearing them give feedback and commentary on how they 
think that we should be rolling out programs and services to benefit a population that I belong to. Black sure. people, brown people, queer people, poor people. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the things that they said, I think, didn't have all the context and nuances that really, you know, needs to be said yeah. when you talk about working with communities. And I found for the first time that sharing my story and combining my expertise and my training and my background mm. and my culture and my identity and my lived experience, when mm. all of those can become into one place and mm-hmm. you can articulate it yes. clearly, yes, it is transformational. Mm. It is absolutely transformational. And our individual voices on our specific lived experiences taken in a larger context for the population is something that is so needed in today. And we think about COVID-19 and we think about the disparities that are happening in the African-American community, in poor community, in indigenous communities, in the Asian Pacific Islander communities. These are specific, unique experiences that are happening within cultural communities. Mm. And there is nuances why these things happen. And I I really Mm. think that we need to start realizing when we think about power, Mm -hmm. okay, when we think about power, Mm -hmm. that you have so much more power than what you think you do. And the system is designed to make you believe that you do not. And so I just want to close on on your point, and I want to drive it home even more. Relationships, relationships, relationships. If you don't remember (laughs) anything that you came out of undergrad with, all right. But you better have came out with five relationships, both mentors, mentees, and peers. You need all three. So while you're in here at UCR... Find at least five to six mentors that you identify in year one and you keep all the way to year four and beyond. Mm. Identify five peers who will be around you. They are your tribe and they are your village and you need to build that around you. And you need to sow seeds into the next generation. So five, find five mentees that you can take on, that you can groom and realizing that mentorship is one of reciprocity. You Mm. learn from your mentees just as much as the mentors teach. So Mm. I think it's very important that whatever the students do while they're at UCR, that if you don't do anything else, that you make building healthy, meaningful and deep relationships your Mm. primary focus in this college experience. And, you know, I I could I could follow up for hours about how instrumental um, that is. But, you know, one point that I wanted to kind of comment on is just how you you said I'm here. I am in this space of people who are at the top of the world in their fields, whether it's public health, whether it's some aspect of education, higher education, whatever. These are the shock the best. No, this was these were the best. Yeah. And these, yet you <laughs> these were still best. able to bring in your lived experience backed with right your training and the understanding you gained throughout your college experience and you were able to tell these experts, nah, like this is what it is. And you know, it, it's sick in this capitalist culture that everything is a commodity. But I want students to understand that your lived experience is so valuable. There are so many people, corporations, institutions that want your lived experience. They want your lived experience. And if you can master and control your lived experience and reinforce it with proper education, proper training, mentorship, there's no limit on what you can do and where you can take your life because you'll be in full control of it. You will no longer be a victim of your circumstance. You'll be now creating these opportunities for future generations and not only for yourself. So 
Gabriel, thank you. And I just, you know, I do want to end on a little bit of uh, black optimism, right? And so if you could, just for closing, what what could you tell our future generation of UCR scholars, in particular our black and our um, black queer brothers and sisters as well? What is your most optimistic vision of the future for them? Um, And don't be afraid to sprinkle a little bit of radical in there, if you will, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my family Mm. family i know this is scary times right now yes and it is but let me tell you Mm. these times of chaos this is where opportunities happen this is where when the system's glue comes undone yes this is where you can move bricks and move blocks and move things around so my hope for you all is that you will recognize the opportunity Mm recognize the opportunity Mm. recognize what resources are at your disposal recognize what opportunities are available for you to maneuver and pivot dig deeper into entrepreneurship yes dig deeper into uh educating yourselves beyond formal education but also other kinds of certifications and crafts and trades Mm. and skills these kinds of things are so valuable and the kind of paralysis that is happening in the world right now yeah it's really a golden moment that Mm. is not going to come around again at least not for many more years where the system is so nimble yeah that you can begin to shape your own destiny and i really do hope that we take the entire system and we flip it all over on its head just flip the entire table absolutely and we do that and we do that by investing in, in, in maneuvering through, around, within, and building new systems. So do not yeah. be afraid to do it. This is the moment to do it is right now. Absolutely. Um, chaos, chaos just, it just, it just breeds opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. And you, mm-hmm. you can do so many things right now. And it's very, very, very easy to get jaded. It's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to be angry. Um, but you have to funnel that, right? You have to funnel that through a, a sense of optimism because the fact is, is we're standing on our ancestors' shoulders, right? The reason why you and I are able to have this conversation is because the people before us had enough forethought to say, I want this to exist for not myself maybe right now, but the people coming up behind me. So um, yeah. thank you so much, Gabriel, for sharing that. Um, we you. really, really appreciate your time and you making the time out to be here on the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast. We were super happy to amplify your voice today. Um, yes. So thank you so much. I look forward to having you back on in the future, hopefully, in between, your, in between your busy schedule. We know you got a lot of popping things going on, but thank you so much for giving back and uh, we'll catch you guys later. Thank you for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. This program is produced by the Community Engagement and Outreach Unit of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of California, Riverside. Learn more about attending UCR by visiting admissions.ucr.edu. And be sure to check out the description for other useful links and resources. Help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And be sure to check out our podcast videos on YouTube. Catch you guys later.